Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. We are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. I'm Robert Winfrey. I'm your host. Let's get the usual out of the way first. Uh, thank you very much for listening. And thank you for interacting with the product. A rating, a review, a like, any comments you have, any sharing you can possibly do of the show on whatever social media platforms or whatever social interactions you happen to have going on. If you have people in your workplace who are fans of the sport and you think they'd enjoy the show, please point them in our direction. That's always helpful, and it's probably the most helpful thing you can do after listening. And since you're already listening, that's the next most helpful thing. So thank you very much. On the agenda this evening, last night, UFC 264, which seems to have done... uh, Early numbers are pretty darn good. Uh, for its paper, for its buys, again, we don't have any real confirmation of this, but seems to have done well. Uh, did a good gate, just under, I think it was just under seven, uh, just under 16 million, like 15.75, 15.758, something like that. Uh, forgive me, I forget the number. So we'll have a review of that. We'll have a preview of this upcoming episode, uh, episode, this upcoming event, because the UFC machine doesn't stop. And this upcoming Saturday, there is another UFC card, so we'll give a preview of that. It's, uh, it's a card. I don't really have anything, <laughs> don't know what else to tell you about that. But we'll, we'll go through that. We'll go through that card. And then news, such as it is. The UFC has a new sponsorship deal on their, uh, uh, uniforms. <laughs> oh, I got thoughts. Uh, the Nevada State Athletic Commission gets out of the dark age and is no longer punishing people, uh, fighters for failed drug tests as it relates to marijuana. And <laughs> loosely related to that, I suppose, <laughs> the UFC is trying to make a rematch between Robbie Lawler and Nick Diaz for UFC 262. So we'll talk a little bit about some of that stuff and anything else that happens to come up while we're recording the show. That's kind of how that usually works. All right. With that out of the way, let's jump right in to last night's event. UFC 264. Your main event, the trilogy fight between Dustin Poirier and Conor McGregor. These two fought first uh, almost seven years ago. I forget, it's pretty close to that. Uh, back at featherweight on McGregor's meteoric rise to the featherweight and then lightweight titles. Poirier... Uh, again, lost that encounter pretty badly. He was knocked out in the first round. Uh, they fought again in January of this year. Uh, with This time with Poirier taking it via second round. Uh, I think they gave him a knockout. Now the trilogy, the fight to settle it. Because nothing's definitive as a trilogy, right? Right? Uh, we get a TKO... Leg injury to Connor. Uh, doctor stoppage related to that between rounds one and two. <sighs> All right, let me let me save my oh, borderline disgust with some of the stuff that's come up after this, uh, in the aftermath of this for after the for after this. Let's let's talk about the fight. The fight itself was kind of what we expected. Connor came out and was throwing some leg kicks, which is not terribly surprising. Uh, any I've mentioned this. A lot of people have mentioned this. Connor's str- Connor's hands, his punches, are set up not necessarily by his other punches, 
but by his kicks. He steers people with them quite well. He's good about annoying you with them and threatening you with them, and then using that to induce a bad reaction out of you, and then countering. That's really what he does best. And he again, landed some decent leg kicks. Poirier fired some back, because that's just kind of how this goes. They both did a little bit of stance switching, which is more surprising from Connor. Uh, Connor's not only a southpaw fighting, he's a left-handed person. Uh, to the best of my recollection. So being orthodox is really backwards for him. Poirier is right-handed. He just fights southpaw. And fighting fighting as a converted southpaw with your non-dominant hand forward is something... Yeah. It's something a lot of lazy people like to do. I, I, I say that because I've done it in the past. I've been, eh, you know what? Let me just put my right hand forward and... I'll use that for most of what I'm doing. And the problem is then your left hand doesn't do anything. One of the one of the benefits of fighting with your off hand forward is that it gets smart about doing stuff. Very specific stuff, but still stuff. Think about this. Just uh, I'm not going to go off on this tangent too much, I promise. But think about this for just a second. If you're whatever dominant hand you are, I'm right-handed. So, think about what you can't do with your left hand. And I absolutely mean this. Can you write your name? I mean, this is a fairly obvious one, but it's one everyone... Can you, can you write legibly with your offhand? I, personally, not so much. Can you tie your shoes with your offhand? Lightly trickier one. I mean, you need both hands, but can you reverse it? Can you do what you do with your dominant hand with your left hand? Can you brush your teeth with your off hand? That one kind of messed me up for a little bit when I realized I it was just so painfully awkward, so now I try on occasion. If you let your stupid hand, whichever one that happens to be, be stupid when you're training and fighting, you're just putting yourself at a serious disadvantage. You learn to use your offhand effectively so that it can do things and be an asset. If you try to get around this problem by fighting with your right hand forward, if something happens to your right hand or your opponent picks up on the fact that that's the only dangerous weapon, well, you're in trouble. Uh, so, fighting as a converted southpaw is something that takes a tremendous amount of effort. And it's something that a lot of people who try to do it don't do, put in the effort. Poirier has very clearly put in the work to be good at fighting as a, as a converted southpaw. I mean, the gold standard for converted southpaws is still Marvin Hagler, but... I mean, that will probably be the case forever. Uh, point being, when Poirier switches, he has a really... He does it all the time, actually. He does a shifting left into the power right, so he starts southpaw, throws out the straight left, steps through on a follow-up, turning it into kind of a double jab, almost... And then as you move to evade that, he brings the overhand right. He caught Max Holloway with that several times. It's the punch he staggered Khabib with when they fought. Well, staggered. It's the punch he tagged Khabib with. Uh, if you've seen that sparring footage that got leaked, that's the shift and punch that he drops his sparring partner with. It's something he does fairly consistently. So when he goes orthodox on occasion, it actually makes more sense because that would be his more natural fighting pose. 
But it was just kind of a leg kick thing, I think, for these two guys, showing a little bit of something different before they both just went back to southpaw versus southpaw. Uh, things got a little bit wonky. Um, I'm not sure of the exact timing on this. I have to double. I'm gonna have to double check this when I rewatch the fight at some point. But eventually, Poirier gets the better of the striking. It, not that Connor has no success. Landed some good leg kicks. Had a good uh, straight left at one point. But generally speaking, Poirier is able to find the appropriate range and kind of ugly things up a little bit. And Poirier has a significant amount of power himself. So Connor kind of tries, he kind of reaches for a takedown, but settles for a clinch. And then Poirier backs him into the fence. Connor jumps for a guillotine. Which is the just the of all the things you might have thought would happen in this fight, right? Conor McGregor jumping for the guillotine, <laughs> which which you know, Poirier turned into a little bit of a good-natured meme uh, after he he jumped the guillotine a few times in his fight with Khabib, and in one instance got it by Khabib's own admission fairly close. But so his kind of joke on uh, Twitter and whatnot for a while was always jump the gilly. And uh, when you're as good a jiu-jitsu practitioner as Poirier, you can make that work. He's got a decent front headlock sequence anyway. But McGregor doing it to Poirier was a bit of an odd, bit of an odd move. Uh, Poirier able to evade that without too much issue. Got his head out, spent the majority of the rest of the round dropping elbows and punches on Connor. To Connor's credit, at one point he landed a really nice upkick. And he was firing some pretty decent elbows off of his back. Anytime Poirier would kind of try to look to pass, uh, he was always passing to his right, too. I wonder if that's just his preference. Anyway, Poirier's trying to pass to his right, and when he does so, his head position changes a little bit. There's a number of reasons for all of that. McGregor just you know, had a little bit of a defense going with his legs and just started hammering elbows to the head. Like, you know, you, you want to try and pass, I'm going to make you pay. Poirier seemed to inevitably kind of go, all right, fine, enough of that, and then got started landing his own barrage of elbows. Uh, towards the end of the round, Poirier lets McGregor up. He's complaining about Connor grabbing the inside of his gloves, which is entirely in character for Connor. <laughs> it's entirely in character for him to do nefarious stuff like that. Uh, let's Connor gets up. They both throw straight lefts at each other, and they both miss. As Connor is planting his foot back after throwing this punch, his leg breaks. It's just above the ankle, and I think they confirmed it was his uh, tibia. And it breaks. It breaks very sim. It's not as bad as you know, the Anderson Silver or Weidman one, where everything just kind of wraps around a tar. Uh, you know, breaks and then wraps around something. But it clearly breaks completely through because he goes to step on it. The ankle rolls a little bit, and then the bone, whatever fracture is exacerbated here, fully breaks. And he kind of steps onto the end of his bone very briefly. This is what happens when you. Uh, this happened to Weidman, it happened to Silva, it happens when this particular break happens. He just It just occurred to him as he was stepping back rather than as he was kicking, he wasn't kicking at all, he was punching. So, 
It breaks. He falls down. Poirier jumps on him, but we see the end of the round. And then as soon as the round's over, Connors, you can see it. You can see the break in his leg. It's not horrific. It's not at a completely disproportionate angle, but he kind of moves his leg at one point, and you can see there's a joint, quote-unquote joint, where there shouldn't be a joint. Doc looks at it and goes, yeah, no, which perfectly understandable. So, fight's over. Uh, That's a weird one, man. Immediately after the fight, uh, Dustin Poirier with some quality... Quality shade he threw at the audience. The audience was very pro-McGregor, which is not terribly surprising. But uh, when he was getting booed... <laughs> I apologize for the for what I'm about to say, but I'm quoting here. When he's uh, when he's being interviewed, he, he actually at one point goes, All of you people booing, you can kiss my whole asshole. <laughs> which immediately got like the biggest pop out of the crowd all night. <laughs> they, they loved me. You know, the old... Uh, yeah, uh, the old Simpsons gag. Yeah, he's right. We suck. Give us help, Wimby. So. The way his leg broke, we don't, we know, we do know that it was broken. He had, uh, McGregor had surgery earlier today, I think. Uh, they reported it was like a three and a half hour procedure. So that seems to be fixed. They've you know, done whatever they're going to do surgically for that. Um. Normally, that break is the result of, we've seen, in MMA, it's usually a kick, right? Some kick, or, you know, kickboxing. It's a kick that's checked, and that's, it usually breaks around the shin. My hunch, and this is just a hunch, it's kind of, other people that have been in there have kind of mentioned, maybe. Uh, Poirier, doing his post-fight interview, said he thought he felt something crack when he checked a leg kick of Connors uh, very early in the round. I haven't again. I haven't really had a chance to rewatch this fight in detail yet, but I don't recall him checking a whole lot of them. That said, it doesn't take much, especially if you're aiming at the calf. Uh, just a little bit of a tweak, and suddenly their their shin is running into the hardest part of your shin. And depending on how they're kicking, it's the weak. It can be the weaker part of their shin that's doing so. But maybe that uh, Connor's coach, John Cavanaugh, said he thought it was on a front kick. Uh, McGregor, he tried to employ these a little bit more in this fight, and I I mentioned this last week. I think it's just a southpaw-southpaw thing with him. He's used to throwing that at an orthodox fighter, and his front kick is a very useful weapon for him. He winded Chad Mendes with them. He steers people with them. He just, it sucks to get kicked in the stomach like that. It really does. Uh, Roy McDonald used a, that same kick to great effect. Uh in a lot of his fights, actually. I don't know if he's... St- uh, he hasn't as much lately, but you're doing his heyday. He was a fairly common part of his repertoire. Uh, McGregor tried to throw a few more of those, and uh, Kavanaugh said that he thought it was uh, one of those front kicks. Poirier kind of tried to parry it with his backhand, his left hand, and his right kind of got a bit of an elbow block, and a little bit of a downward elbow, actually, kind of just onto the top of the ankle there, into the shin. And he thinks that's when the break started. And then when Connor you know, planted again on it later, it just uh, fully fractured. That's, that's when the fracture would have occurred, and then it just fully broke uh, when he planted on it like that. I don't know. I'd have to... That's going to take some detail watching of the of rewatching of the fight to figure out exactly when and where that might have happened. But that's my hunch. 
there's just no reason for the bone to break apropos of nothing else when you step like that. Your ankle will roll first. Your joints will have give there, and that's more—that's what they're there for. It's a—it's really odd for the bone to to do that. So I imagine that there was some either a kick from Connor that just didn't land all that advantageously for him, or Poirier, one of Poirier's uh, either checks with his leg kicks or the the block to the teep or one of the times when Connor went orthodox if Poirier kicked him in the left leg then but something happened uh, but apart from just stepping wrong on you you don't just step wrong on your leg and your you know, your shin snaps in half that's not really a thing I think there's certain uh, there are certain conditions that might make that a thing if your bone if you have uh, severe enough brittle bone disease or something like that but generally speaking for anyone, especially anyone fighting, that's not really going to happen. So, that's kind of where that is. Uh, another thing that kind of got brought up, and I've been thinking about this a little bit. Uh, if you remember the second fight between Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz, which Conor won, he landed a lot of leg kicks in that fight. To the shock of no one, anyone who fights Nate Diaz should use leg kicks, and use a lot of them, because he doesn't check them. Nate's defense... I'm going to steal this from a YouTube channel, uh, the Hard to Hurt guys, uh, Icy Mike in particular. Nate's response to being kicked in the leg is to look at you and go, Really? You're going to kick me in the leg? And then you do it again, and he goes, Really? All right, fine, come on, do it again. We're going to do this now. People stop kicking Nate in the leg because they want him to approve of their fight, I suppose. It's really weird. He offers you... I mean, Cerrone was the same way, if you think back. First round of Nate Diaz and Donald Cerrone. Cerrone beats the crap out of Diaz's legs. And then just stops doing it. It's not even like Nate has a great has a great strategy in terms of his cage position or pressure to deal with it. His opponents just kind of stopped doing it. Leon Edwards stopped doing it. He was brutalizing Diaz's legs and then just kind of stopped. Really weird. Uh, but point being, he didn't really check any of Connor's leg kicks. And if you remember Connor after that fight, he was on crutches. He banged up his own shin and foot kicking... Uh, kicking Diaz. And then, of course, there were issues with his legs in the second fight with Poirier, but... There's a couple of things I think at play here. Now, there's a fairly... I shouldn't say fairly large. There's a non-trivial debate about the merits of various shin conditioning techniques. Now, I'm not qualified to go into detail about all of them. Uh, I mean, if you look at, if you look at, like, Thailand, where they have small children competing in, like, full contact Muay Thai f fights, they will run, um, like, glass up and down their shins to deaden the nerves. Uh, I think Stephen Thompson, who will, whose fight we'll get to in a minute or two, uh, he's got a good video on his YouTube channel about some of his shin conditioning techniques. Uh... And I wonder if there's a level of, I just wonder how, if there's a level of shin conditioning that Conor McGregor isn't quite doing, or hasn't really felt the need to do, I, something like that, because 
his shins should not quite have this perpetual issue. Uh, at least most, I mean, at a bare minimum, most fighters don't. Is the way to is the way to mention that. Uh, so that might be that. Here's the other thing about Connor's leg kicks, and most of the time this isn't an issue, but it might be for him. Uh, Jack Slack has brought this up on occasion, and he's entirely correct. Leg kicks are one of those techniques that don't have to be pretty to be effective. If you want a good, if you want an effective, valuable left hook, it probably looks like a very aesthetically pleasing punch. Because there's a reason the technique has developed the way that it has, it's to exacerbate the strengths, and without without the proper technique, it's just not a very effective weapon. The jab is kind of similar, there's just a lot of variations on jabbing, but the same general principle. For most offensive weapons, most, proper technique exists to make them effective. And, I mean, this is also for uh, even just landing strikes. There are people who will... You see this in some professionals. When they throw punches, their fists wind up inverted. Right? If you start with your thumb, you make a fist with your thumb, uh, you know, that top part of your hand pointed up. By the time they get to the target, they're all the way up with the thumb pointing down at the ground. Which is a really odd way to punch. Uh, you can Again, you can get away with it if you have a lot of power, but... Point being, proper technique in 95% of, with 95% of techniques, with 95% of fighters, exists to make them work. And if you don't do it properly, it's probably not working. Leg kicks are one of the things that, for pretty much anyone, they don't have to look pretty to work. You're taking your shin, and you're throwing it at the other guy's calf or thigh. That doesn't need to look pretty or be technically correct to have a to have a, a deleterious effect on your opponent. You just hit them with something hard in something in a place where they're soft, and it hurts. They don't need to look pretty, and Jose Aldo has the best-looking leg kicks in the sport. Uh. I mean, there's some there are some other very good leg kicks. Edson Barboza be another one. I mean, we can go down the list, which I'm not certainly not going to spend all day li listing up great leg kickers. But if you look at the way I'm going to use Connor because he's the one we're talking about. If you look at the way Connor throws a leg kick, be that on the heavy bag or in a fight, versus the way Aldo Barboza, I mean, pick whoever you want who you think has a really good, not just effective leg kick, but a good looking leg kick. You can see all the technical differences. You can see all the ways that Connors isn't correct. It just doesn't really matter because the difference in effect... The difference in effect between getting kicked in the leg by Connor and kicked in the leg by Jose Aldo is fairly minimal. I'm sure Aldo kicks harder. That's, why, that's part of why the technique exists. And Aldo is a very, very strong kicker. So I'm, I'm not saying that you know, Connor, that, that Aldo is, you know, uh, I'm not drawing a strict parody. But how much better, how much more effective are Aldo's leg kicks than Connor's? And the answer is, eh, it's not, the, the difference is not as much as you think. 
getting kicked in the leg by someone who kicks like Connor still hurts, will still mess up your leg, will still steer you, will still get you thinking, will still distract you, pretty much as much as getting kicked in the leg by Jose Aldo or Edson Barboza or Taito Ivas has got some good leg kicks, actually, now that I think about it. He's also on this card. Again, pick whoever you want. Doesn't matter. The point is, you don't need good-looking, full-on, properly, technically perfect leg kicks for your leg kicks to have a real impact on how the fight goes. And Connor has ugly leg kicks. Now, they still work, they still land, they still do damage. One of the downsides to the way Connor throws his leg kicks, and this comes up, it's not as bad in his uh, footage when he's kicking a bag, but he really doesn't turn his hip over when he throws leg kicks, and that's... That's something that will help prevent shin breaks like this. Uh, because your your bones are not, especially your shin bones, they're not spherical. And if you look at a cross-section, they're not circles, they're ovate, they're ovals. Turning your hips over helps properly align the part of your, helps the pressure from the kick land on the part of the bone that is structurally designed to absorb impact more than the other parts of it. Uh, and look, Anderson Silva is a phenomenal leg kicker, and he got his leg busted, partially because he didn't really turn. Partially because he didn't really turn his hip over when he threw that leg kick. Not saying it wouldn't have broken anyway. He threw full force. Weidman brought his knee up and checked into it with you know as much force as he could muster. That was always going to end badly. That particular collision will always end badly. How badly is, again, something of a, you know, we'll never know, because what happened is what happened. A little bit the same with Weidman and Uriah Hall. He's throwing that big outside leg kick, and his hips don't quite turn all the way over. And, again, would that have changed his leg snapping in half? I have no idea. He was throwing that sucker hard, and Uriah Hall got a bit of a check on it. And sometimes that's all it takes. But some of that technique exists in that way for a reason, and Connor doesn't quite use it in fights. He was also kicking at very long range, so a lot of his impact was going foot and, like, high ankle. And I know technically this was in the bone, but if you're just... I'm not going to get too deep into the anatomy. I'm not qualified to do that, necessarily. But you'll... Again, you have like, but you'll understand when I say like high ankle. It's it's up on the shin, but barely off the ankle and off the foot. It's the bone. It's not the joint, which is a good thing for Connor actually. But you don't really want to land there when you kick. You want to land into the meat of your shin. That should be the hardest. But some of that is just the chaos of combat and both parties moving around as stuff is happening, and that's never perfect. But. It's It might be a bit of a problem for him. Now, uh, one of the good things about this is it was a bone break. I mentioned this after the Weidman thing. Bone breaks are generally, generally, let me stress this one more time, generally better to heal than ligament damage or joint damage. Uh, ligaments in particular. The reality is bones heal on their own. They're kind of, there are... There are biological processes in place to knit together 
broken bones. If you tear your ACL and you don't have surgery, it will never heal. You're just never going to have an ACL. It's just gone. So you have some biological processes on your side. And barring complications, like infections, etc., the whole host of potential complications is quite long, but barring complications, broken bones heal on the quicker side of things, especially if they're simple fractures. Uh, simple fracture being one instead of compound, multiple, or, God forbid, spiral, which are just awful. And this, I believe, was a simple fracture. It was th completely through the bone, uh, which is not good, but it's still a broken bone. So they've, I assume they've put a rod in there, which they do when they, when you have a, a break like this, you put a rod down through the bone to help stabilize everything while it heals. Uh, and I, plenty of other people who've had this, who've had a similar injury to this have gone on record about uh, more details about the medical procedure, or if there's any number of uh, you know, doctors on YouTube or whatnot who are happy, who have gone over this in greater detail than I will. But it's, it's still a fairly simple healing procedure, and when when bones heal, they tend to heal pretty much to full strength. Uh, and, I mean, there's the old myth that if you break a bone, it heals stronger and will never break there again. That's not entirely true. Again, what you get there is, my understanding, if I'm wrong, forgive me, but the, the calcification process that kind of knits the bones together is very strong, but it's also not really bone. Uh, it's it's, some, it's a slightly different... Uh, I believe it's a slightly different... material. I don't know why that word escaped me. But it, it's still not the best idea to... You know, my arm broke right here, so uh, it'll never break there again. Right now I can hit it with a bat. No... Because everything around it will still break. But broken bones are imminently healable, assuming there's no complications. And that's a big assumption, but it's a... This wasn't a... This didn't sound like it was a complicated medical procedure. It didn't sound like it was a complicated break. It was just the bone. I, there's been no reports of ligament damage. So in... I shouldn't say short order, but I imagine in relatively short order, uh, Connor will probably return. Uh, it's He probably won't return this year. I mean, look, if he takes a full year to properly heal from this, cool. Uh, take your time, man. Heal up. I, I say that sincerely. But, yeah, I mean, Chris Weidman's... Uh, said recently he was back to kind of like very light sparring and if you remember how bad that particular break was and that wasn't all that long ago I mean, again it wasn't yesterday but it wasn't you know that long ago and it's it sucks and it looks awful but broken bones are kind of designed to heal uh, where you know, other injuries, the human body is not designed for the, for them to heal. So you're you're trying to really kind of jumpstart something that, you know, with broken bones, you put them next to each other, you secure them, 
and you let uh, and then you kind of let the natural healing process take over and do its thing with you know torn ACLs or any other ligament you want to think of you have to create a brand new one get it in there slowly rehab the material slowly integrate foreign tissue because usually it's foreign I think into your body and then kind of slowly get everything up to speed getting your bones to fuse back together after they've been broken is by comparison a simpler procedure with the eternal caveat of barring any few any complications now as far as what's next for everyone well that's a little bit of a sticky widget isn't it because dana white president of the ufc came out after the event and said, yes, the story of this fight was not Dustin Poirier looking good. It was that Connor broke his leg. As soon as Connor's ready, we'll have a rematch between these two. And any of us that were still awake when this news, when this soundbite came out, immediately facepalmed. I know I did. <sighs> because we immediately had to go, well, okay, how's the timing on that going to work? Are you going to sit Dustin Poirier, your... Look, the man's beaten Conor McGregor twice. And la sorry, last thing I should say about the fight. Two of the judges gave Poirier a 10-8 first. That might be a touch generous, but I don't argue with it. I only went 10-9 doing it live, but I'd, I'm not arguing a 10-8 for Dustin in the first. Uh, he hurt McGregor standing a couple of times, spent the majority of that round on top landing elbows and punches and then depend because you have to do this live and when you when you're scoring especially if you're a judge if you thought Poirier knocked Connor down with that last punch when his ankle when his leg broke then that's that if that was a punch that had landed and dropped Connor and then Dustin jumps on him and is swarming and the bell saves Connor from being stopped if that's what happens if that again and doing it live if that's what you thought happened 100% 10-8 now with the benefits of replay and uh, whatever we were looking at okay they missed uh, so I'm just saying I'm I'm very sympathetic to the 10-8 argument that's all I'm saying Dustin Poirier is pretty I think pretty clearly the better fighter certainly there's a lot of evidence to suggest that after the two after their most recent two fights it's not that connor is incapable of winning a fight with dustin poirier at this point i don't think he's incapable of it but i really don't think it's probable i tend to think that poirier is the better fighter he's got a little bit more this might sound really weird but especially at lightweight, I think I think Dustin has more firepower in his hands. Connor's power, while it's certainly formidable, is exacerbated by his timing and his accuracy. This is, some, this is something by his own admission. And what was the famous thing he said after beating Jose Aldo? You know, timing beats speed and precision beats power. That's a lit. That's accurate. But it's also a little bit telling on himself in just the following ways he's not got really fast hands 
this has kind of stood out to me, especially if you go back and watch his last handful of fights. Even his boxing fight, if you want to throw that in there. But Connor doesn't have fast hands. He's... He looks like he has very fast hands because he is able to time his opponents quite well, most of the time. And they have big impact, not just because he has power, and he's cert I don't mean to say that the man has pillow fists by any stretch of the imagination. He clearly hits hard. But it's exacerbated by accuracy. And again, the timing. Those two things work in concert together. When he doesn't quite have those working... His striking is not nearly as devastating. Some That's got pointed out all the time. Look at the third round of his fight with Khabib. He gets that whole fight on the feet. What's he do with it? He, does, he never hurts Khabib. Never. He gets five minutes of pure striking, basically. And he never hurts him. Uh, he... All the damage he did to Nate Diaz... Uh, I mean, I shouldn't use Nate as an example. Uh, look at both of the the most recent two Poirier fights, then, will, will serve as other good examples. His hands just aren't that fast, especially if the fight drags on. And if you can disrupt his read on your timing, or you have a good defensive posture, his striking doesn't really pose the same kind of dynamic threat that it that you that it used to. Uh, that's just I think that's just kind of the truth. So he's the game also might have caught up to him a little bit. I, I think it was Luke Thomas I heard say this. When Connor was on his rise through the featherweight division, he was kind of saying, you know, I see a lot of stiffness. And a lot of inflexibility in all the striking that's happening at featherweight, and a little, and you know, a little bit at lightweight. He called everybody at lightweight stuck in the mud. If you'll recall that, uh, he didn't just mean the divisional, pos the position of the division as far as its structure. He meant, you know, these guys fight like they're stuck in the mud. And Lord knows, when he fought Eddie Alvarez, he made it look that way. But what was true? five, six years ago in this landscape of MMA is not as true now. All of the habits, and I don't just mean individual fighters, but some of the like meta decisions that were being made that he exploited are not there anymore. And I wonder how much of that might be playing into some of his recent issues. I mean, there's, there's a whole host of things. I don't want to get too much into it because I don't want to speculate too much, but that's that's something to think about, at least. So, where we go from here... So, there was a question, you know, so what, are we going to sit Dustin Poirier on the shelf for a year uh, to get this rematch? And a year might be a bit stretching it, but for the sake of argument. I'm going to sit this guy on the shelf. He just, in, in probably your two biggest pay-per-views of the calendar year for 2021 thus far, and I, I'm not sure of that, but my hunch... My hunch would be that between UFC 257 and UFC 264, those two are going to be the highest-selling pay-per-views of 2021, if not the highest-selling two of the top three or five. I don't know what one. Might, I don't know what other one might intercept in there. 
Maybe Usman, maybe Usman Masvidal too. Maybe. I forget which event that was. It doesn't really matter. The point is, uh, this guy has been featured prominently in your two biggest pay-per-views of the year thus far. That I think I can say fairly safely. In the lightweight division, and he stopped your biggest star twice. And your response to this is not going to be, let's use this to maybe build another star. Uh, let's not use this to gain momentum and kind of generally raise the division. It's going to be stick this guy on ice. And then we'll... <laughs> until we can get you know, the, this fourth fight. Now, that's not what their plan is, lest you... Uh, Dana came out and clarified a little bit that... Dustin Poirier's next fight will be against the UFC lightweight champion Charles Oliveira for the belt. But that as soon as Connor's ready, they're going to do Poirier McGregor. If Poirier beats Oliveira, and at the moment, just kind of, you know, off the top of my head, thinking about both of them, I would favor Poirier. Not huge. Uh, not to a huge degree, but I would favor... I've said this before. I think Dustin Poirier is the best lightweight in the world. Oliveira is the champion. He won it fairly. And he deserves to be acknowledged as such. And I do. Charles Oliveira is the UFC lightweight champion. I do not think Charles Oliveira is the best lightweight in the world. Now, Oliveira might beat Poirier and put the whole thing to bed. But my my inclination right now is that I think Poirier might... I would favor Poirier over Oliveira. So if Poirier beats Oliveira, let's say, well, we're July 11th. So let's say October, around then, right? Maybe a little bit longer, October, November. Uh, you know, kind of pursuant to everyone's interest and timing and whatnot. But last quarter, 2021, Dustin Poirier fights for the UFC lightweight title against uh, Charles Oliveira. If Poirier wins... It's entirely probable that his first title defense will not be against a deserving contender. It will not be against former champion Charles Oliveira. It will not be against rising contenders Benil Dariush or a rematch with Justin Gagey. Give me that rematch. UFC intern listening to this podcast, right? All I, Not all I want. The majority of what I want. Give me a rematch between Dustin Poirier and Justin Gagey. Their first fight was bananas. I mean, Justin Gagey, by Poirier's own admission, tore his quad. He kicked him so hard and so frequently in the leg. The new and improved Justin Gagey against this version, against Dustin Poirier right now, at, at the peak of his game, give me that rematch. I, hook, I would need to hook that into my veins. It's entirely probable Poirier's first fight is not Gagey or Chandler or Oliveira, if he wins. So it wouldn't be a rematch. Not a fight with Michael Chandler, not a fight with Justin Gagey, not a fight with Benil Dariush, not a fight with... Who else is ranked? The UFC lightweight rankings are a little bit weird, so give me just a second and let me pull them up. These have not been updated post... Because Connor was 5, I think, coming into this. Yeah. So it probably will not be, so it it wouldn't be against a ranked contender. 
Uh, they'll probably keep Connor ranked. I shouldn't say that. Uh, but it probably won't be against a deserving contender. They will probably <laughs> they will probably try to put Dustin po- to put Connor McGregor with two consecutive losses to Dustin Poirier into a title fight. That's that's some Uriah Faber levels of bull, right? Like that's <laughs> that that is utterly uncalled for on every level. But that's probably what they'd try to do. While deserving lightweights fight, I mean, we still don't know what a few of these guys are gonna do. But you've got Islamakashev fighting next week and. That'll be a heck of a fight. He's on the come up. You've got RDA looking for a fight. Tony might... Tony probably won't be able to turn it around at this point, but who knows? Chandler could rebound. I mean, we could get... Look, if you get, if they make Michael Chandler and Justin Gagey, the winner of that should fight the winner of Poirier Oliveira. Straight up. That shouldn't be all that complicated. But that's the current public stance, at least, is that if is that whatever happens with Dustin's next fight, win, lose, or draw, he's gonna fight Conor McGregor when Conor McGregor is ready to return to action. I think it's stupid. It annoys me. It really, the fact that Dana went immediately to that, like he didn't hesitate. The first couple of guys who were talking to him in the back after this, he was like, "Yeah." Connor will get it. Will absolutely get a rematch with Dustin as soon as this is done. Ugh. Just ugh. Why? I mean, I know why. the The answer the answer is obvious when I say why. The answer is money. Which is this is the weirdest thing. The UFC has gone out of their way to normalize their income, right? And, and I don't mean this as a negative. They are the UFC is no longer beholden to their pay-per-view, uh, to the whims of pay-per-view. They have guaranteed income from ESPN, enough to put them in the black at the start of the year. Assuming the UFC hits all of its contractual requirements to ESPN, ESPN pays them enough every year to make them profitable. Everything else they make is gravy. Every percentage they get from pay-per-view sold on ESPN Plus is gravy. Everything they get from international pay-per-view is gravy. Everything they get from whatever sponsorship deals the UFC makes is gravy. All of this is pure profit. Of all the combat sports organizations in the world, the UFC is, ironically enough, the best positioned to give the middle finger to the whims of the public and the whims of individual paydays in favor of the integrity of the sport, and they won't do it. Uh, they absolutely won't do it. <laughs> it's now I understand that the amount of revenue potentially that a Conor McGregor and Dustin Poirier fight represents is significantly different from the average UFC title fight. I get it. It's still a little bit mind-blowing that this organization has the potential, through guaranteed revenue, to not care about 
<coughs> excuse me, to not care about these highs and lows of pay-per-view sales. And they are happy to tell you this whenever Francis Ngannou or John Jones or Dan Hooker, I, I, Dan Hooker I, whenever somebody else rocks the boat just a little bit, they are happy to let them know how little they matter. Happy to. Yet for some reason, in this instance, when it makes no sense, they are willing to be deferential to Conor McGregor. That seems very odd to me. So Poirier, again, Poirier should fight for the belt next. I like his chances. I favor him just a little bit. I favor him just a little bit. Connor apparently is going to get a fight with Dustin whenever he wants it. Uh, just, I don't know. Maybe the UFC is trying to cash McGregor out. Maybe the UFC is throwing, saying, sure, you want a fourth fight with Dustin Poirier after that. Whenever you want it, champ. You are welcome to go out there and get shellacked again. And then then, his, then your star power is diminished. Your position in the UFC title picture is non-existent. And the UFC at that point is essentially free and clear of McGregor's demands. That would be a very odd decision, considering where he is now. You, I don't think you need that. But, uh, who knows? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, Connor, you know, to Connor's credit, I'm going to say this about him, man. We've seen other people with a similar leg break, and they are they were in slightly different positions on the leg. They are in agony. And Connor was not in was not feeling great. But as he's sitting against the fence, waiting for his leg to be splinted, he's still talking trash. Whatever else you want to say about the man, that is a... You can call it classless, and I don't disagree with you. But if that same injury happened to you or me, I'd be doing what Chris Weidman was doing. Which is, on the ground, holding my leg, screaming in pain. And I'm not saying that to knock Weidman one iota. That man is unbelievably tough and could beat me on one. He could beat me on one leg. If he want, if Chris Weidman wanted to throw hands with me with his leg as it is right now, I'm fairly confident he'd kick my butt. So I'm not knocking the man at all when I say Anderson Silva, same thing. Anderson, one of the greatest of all time. I'd be doing what they were doing. I wouldn't be sitting there going, I'm going to continue trash talking this guy trying to diminish his win by saying it was a doctor stoppage. You didn't do anything to me. This isn't over. I'll fight you in the parking lot. I wouldn't be doing that. That there's a, there is a special kind of switch that has to be flipped in your brain for that to be what you do in that position. Whether that's a good thing or not, I, I can't make a judgment call on that. I leave that up to you, I suppose. But that is a, that is profoundly uncommon in a sport that attracts the uncommon. Well, that was your main event. Uh, such as it was. You know, the only, I think the only last thing on this, Connor trying to diminish 
Connor tried to diminish Poirier's win by saying it was a doctor stoppage. He had a, he's, I think it was an interview with Stephen A. Smith, where he said, my record's actually better than it looks. It's like 19 and 1, or whatever it was, because the only, I only count knockouts. So he discounted all of his wins by decision, and discounted all of his losses by anything other than a, uh, uh, strike-related stoppage, I guess. And so, you know, the, a knockout is the only thing that's final in this business. Everything else, the submissions, the judges, no, no, no. Only the knockout is final, which is stupid. I mean, it, it's a soundbite, and it's something that he might have to tell himself to get into the proper headspace. There were two responses to this that I would like to highlight. One came from Khabib. <laughs> because Khabib hates that man. Khabib hates Connor so much. Well, I don't know that if he still hates him, but he's not going to shy away from a chance to dig at him. He just kind of politely responded on social media. You know, the best thing in this sport is to drag someone into the depths of the ocean, show them who they really are, and make them give up. Uh, what you think is best in fighting is entirely up to the individual. The best response, however, came from Max Holloway, who quote-tweeted this little segment and said, Yeah, baby, I'm undefeated. Which is true, no one has ever stopped Max Holloway with strikes. Dustin Poirier tapped him out once. I believe every other loss he's had is a decision, including his loss to Conor McGregor. Uh, Max is Max is a gem, man. Max is the best. So, anyway, main event, wrapping that up. The rest of this should go a little bit faster. Gilbert Burns defeats Stephen Thompson via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the board. I was 29-28, Burns clearly takes the first, Thompson takes the second. The third was going Thompson's way, I thought, for the first half or so. And then Burns, in a bit of desperation, but he gets it, gets a takedown, and is able to spend enough time in mount, dishing out damage, etc., enough control and enough dominant positions to overcome that differential, wins the fight. Uh, I don't have a whole lot to say about this. Burns, I think he knows he's not going to get a title shot off of this. Uh, Post-fight, he called out, I think he called it like Jorge Masvidal, Nate Diaz, or... Oh, Leon Edwards? I think he did. Uh, part of that is just timing. Uh, it's, it's not really a secret the UFC wants to do Kamaru Usman and Colby Covington, too. Which, uh, I've said before, I think Colby might pose the most difficult challenge for Usman. Might. I don't know how he'd line up with this version of Kamaru, but I don't know what other lessons he might have taken from their first fight that might change how a, how a fight now would go. I mean, you know, Colby's line of, I'm going to go out there and wrestle him, it's not a bad idea. Colby can wrestle very well. And Usman's knees aren't great. Now, what Usman's been able to do in terms of slightly retooling his game a little bit and uh, picking up the striking a bit more with the uh, under a little with Trevor Whitman's help, current version of Kamaru Usman is one of the scariest fighters in the world. Right? Like, I still pick Kamaru to win that fight, but I, I do, I do think Colby might be the toughest test. Might you know, Colby's the only guy who's by scorecards, at least come close to beating Kamaru. No one else has come anywhere near close. 
Burns, you know, Burns staggered him a little bit in the first round of their fight and then couldn't finish the deal and got violently stopped. So, point being, Burns is not going to be the next title challenger off of this. He's probably going to need one more. And, you know, the guys he all named are... And Nate Diaz, not so much. But Leon Edwards and Jorge Masvidal are still well-regarded. I think they're both ranked. Edwards, you know... Edwards should be... Should be fighting for the belt, but he's not. Masvidal's down at number seven. Uh, Michael Chiesa has... Chiesa and Vicente Luque are going to fight pretty soon, which is a great fight. So he, he is probably going to need one more. I think he knows that, and I think the timing was just never going to work out for him. So he wants another one. He wants another... Fairly high-profile one that can secure him not the next shot at the belt, but the one after it. And that's fairly smart forward thinking on the part of Gilbert Burns. Uh, as for Stephen Thompson, at 38, man, at welterweight, you know, the commentary team mentioned that they mentioned Thompson's age. Then, I can't remember if it was DC or Rogan who went, yeah, but then Glover Teixeira, who at 42 or 43 is about to fight for the belt again. Which is true, but one... Look, the big, that ignores the biggest point. The biggest reason that's not in Stephen Thompson's future is that welterweight is not light heavyweight when it comes to that. Heavyweight, light heavyweight, you can age slow in those divisions. That is not true at welterweight. Anything, anything 185 and below... It's a younger fighter's division. That doesn't mean the younger guy always wins, but it means post-35, especially when you get towards 37, 38, you're kind of done as a, as, a, as a top contender. That's, that's kind of done for you. It is very, very rare that that is not the case. And... It, I think it's pretty clearly the case for Stephen Thompson. You know, this this was kind of his last shot at that. He had a had a couple of good wins coming into this, but if he couldn't get over the Gilbert Burns hump, he wasn't going to pose that much of a threat to Usman. He's slowed down a little bit. His style's been a little bit figured out, a little bit. It's still not easy to beat the man. You know, Burns did not have an easy fight here, but at 38. With his long history of full-contact karate, of kickboxing, of MMA. Yeah, he's... We'll probably see him fight a few more times, but... As a player in the title picture, I think Steven's done. I don't like saying that because I like Steven Thompson. I enjoyed watching him fight. Uh, his YouTube channel is... Uh, if you haven't checked it out, it's quite good. And I don't say that just because he's a fighter. I mean, the man actually has kind of learned how to succeed at YouTube, which is a skill in and of itself. But I think he's probably done as a, as a top contender. Uh, heavyweight, Tai Tuivasa defeated Greg Hardy via knockout, 107 of the first with punches. Greg Hardy clobbers Tai Tuivasa with a pretty good straight right. Tuivasa gets a little bit wobbly. Hardy, showing his undisciplined fighting and a little bit of inexperience, charges at him, looking to put him away. Tuivasa sees him coming from a mile away because 
I imagine Tuivasa had a little bit of that moment in Monty Python. Uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail when Lancelot's charging over the hill and they just repeat the same shot half a dozen times. He, he was coming from that far away. Uh, slips, slips the punch that he's offered. Lands, has a bit of a right to steer him into a left hook. Drops him. Pounds him out. Uh, Hardy's... I think it was Hardy's... I can't remember which eye it was of his. I think it was his left. His left eye swole up very quickly. Uh, was all I was going to say there. Um, I mentioned this last week, guys. Greg Hardy, all of Greg Hardy's wins in the UFC over people no longer in the UFC. Greg Hardy's stand-up in a purely technical sense is actually not bad. And he hits hard. But he has no gas tank. And some of that's a byproduct of him being an enormous man. But he's got a very poor gas tank. His lack of discipline in the fight is a real problem. And he doesn't have a ground game. I I don't know how much longer he's going to be in the UFC. ESPN, this makes... This guy, Greg Hardy, got a bunch of main card positions on big fights based on perceived name value, I guess. Or ESPN seems to like having a former NFL player on the UFC roster. He's probably going to stick around for another couple of fights, but I, I don't care. Um, Ty Tuivasa said he wants to fight somebody ranked next. Uh, sure. Like, Tuivasa is who he is as a fighter. I don't care that much. But sure, throw him in there with, I don't know. Throw him in there with uh, Tom Aspinall, if Aspinall didn't have it. Or has he fought Blagoy even of? I think he has. Hasn't fought. Yeah, Ivanov beat him. Sergey Spivak beat him. Uh, who else? Uh, Sergey Pavlovich. Uh, so he shouldn't be fighting anyone like ten and above. But eleven, th- eleven through fifteen goes as follows: Walt Harris, Tom Aspinall, Blagoy Ivanov, Sergey Spivak, and Sergey Pavlovich. Now, Ivanov and Spivak have both beaten Tuivasa already. Aspinall might be needing to fight somebody above him. Harris? I think Harris lost his last fight, didn't he? Double check that. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's lost his last three. Um, he lost to Alistair Overeem. He lost to Alexander Volkov, and he lost to Marcin Tabora. He might have to fight down someone like Tai Tuivasa. I might might have to fight down to someone like Tuivasa. Again, or Aspinall should be looking up rather than back, whereas Harris might have to defend his position, but... I mean, we're talking about lower end of heavyweight. I I don't care that much. Um, Irine Aldana defeated Yana Kunitskaya via TKO punches, 435 of the first. Um, 
Aldana missed weight, needs to be said. She weighed 139 and a half. That's a fairly significant miss. Uh, that might be injury-related. Apparently, her coroner was mentioning that this was the result of her still dealing with the after-effects of uh, COVID. She had COVID-19. Apparently, it came through her gym in a pretty bad way. And I mean, I'm somewhat sympathetic to the plight there. I haven't had COVID, but I know a few people that have, and they're certainly still dealing with certain effects of the certain long-term, longer-term effects. But if that's going to be a long-term problem, the unfortunate reality for Aldana is that means you have to leave the weight class. You signed a fight at bantamweight, you have to make 135. That's kind of how that goes. As for the fight itself, Kuniskaya came out very aggressive, some kicks, some punch, tried to push the pace, but Aldana, good footwork, good ring awareness. Just started picking up what Kunitskaya was doing, landing counters, caught her with a really nice left hook coming in, dropped her, pounded her out on the ground. Uh, some good control from the turtle position. Uh, as Kun as Kunitskaya, Kunitskaya tried to invert for a knee bar briefly, which either gets you to the gets you a leg, gets you to turtle, whatever. Uh, so good control from Aldana when she got there, and she kept landing punches. Aldana has some very legitimate skills. Unfortunately, she's a bit limited. Uh, but, you know, bantamweight is not a healthy division on the women's side of things at the moment. So she might... I don't think she'll get a title fight off of this. Especially with the weight mess. But... One more? She gets one more kind of quality win, and there's not a lot of options. I mean, unless Juliana Pena springs a major upset, and it would be a major upset. Uh, I imagine Amanda Nunes beats her, my inclination. She need, Unless Nunes retires, she does still need opponents, and Aldana might be one of the last still somewhat top-ranked contenders that hasn't already been thrashed by Nunes, so who knows. Uh, Bantamweight, Sean O'Malley defeated Chris Moutinho via TKO. This was a mercy stoppage, 433 of the third. Moutinho took this fight on short notice, replacing... Who was it? Louis Smolka. Sean O'Malley beat him like the proverbial government mule. O'Malley, I, let me see if I still have this, uh, if I still have the specific uh, numbers here. Okay, I do, in fact. Sean O'Malley landed 230 significant strikes in this fight over, so over 14 and a half minutes. That's not, okay. That's the most significant strikes landed in a UFC bantamweight title, uh, bantamweight fight ever. The previous record holder was Peter Yan over uh, Jose Aldo. Yan landed 194. That was over five rounds. O'Malley in 14 minutes and 30 seconds, 33 seconds, landed more strikes... Then Jan did over four and a half rounds, give or take, against Jose Aldo. And Jan pushes that. Now, some of that's because Aldo's a much better fighter than Moutinho. But that ought to t 
tell you just how much punishment Sean O'Malley threw at this guy. That's the, for the record, this is also the second most significant strikes ever landed in a three-round fight. The actual record is Nate Diaz and Donald Cerrone. Nate landed 238 over that three-round affair. This fight probably should have been stopped between the first and second rounds. That first round was a 10-8 by any appreciable, borderline 10-7. The second round was a 10-8. The third was 10-8, borderline 10-7. And, look, I'll give Moutinho credit for a couple of things. One, his chin, man. He ate bombs. He ate some serious bombs and just, just kept coming. Just kept coming. Uh, kept moving forward, kept walking forward, wasn't going to stop. Uh, just, just had his face turned into hamburger meat. And I don't think he ever got knocked down. Maybe in the first, but I mean, O'Malley certainly has power. So that, so credit to his toughness, credit to his chin, to his willingness to fight. All of that deserves credit. But this fight should not have gone on as long as it did. And I, There's a bunch of people who, once when uh, Herb Dean stopped the fight, Joe Rogan on commentary went, I don't understand that. Let the guy finish out the fight. Guys? No. You, you're not entitled to 30 more seconds of brain damage. There is nothing in the rules that instruct a referee, there's nothing in the law, which is what the referees have to go by, that says if you survive long enough, you are entitled to 30 more seconds or another minute and a half or two minutes or whatever of head trauma. You do not have the right to die in the ring. And if you think I'm being overly dramatic here, no. That kind of sustained damage to the head kills people. <sighs> One of the famous... Do you guys know? Maybe. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Do you know why boxing title fights are 12 rounds instead of 15? Do you? I do. For the longest time, they were 15. The, the thought being those last three rounds over the normal 12-rounder were, you know, the title rounds, etc., etc., etc. That change came about primarily after the death of a Korean boxer by the name of Dooku Kim. He was killed by Ray Mancini, Ray Boom Boom Mancini, a great boxer. Uh, on, like, primetime broadcast television. I think they were on ABC at the time. And he was killed by basically the last punch in the 15th round. If that fight had only been 12 rounds, Mr. Kim would not have died. That's just the harsh reality of it. Now, people still die in the ring with the precautions that we have now, but it's just been a little bit less common, thankfully. But 
Anyone going, you should have let the guy finish like a warrior. No. No. You are not entitled to potentially taking lethal damage in the name of a moral victory. You guys remember? Do you remember when Mario Yamasaki was booted from refereeing after the Valentina uh, Shevchenko and Priscilla Cachuea fight? I do. You remember his logic for not stopping that? But he said he said he wanted her to go out on her shield like a warrior, and he was castigated, rightly so, and given the boot. If something bad had happened to Chris Moutinho in that last 30 seconds, if Herb doesn't stop it, and something bad happens, what would we have said? I guarantee you what we said is that should have been stopped earlier. I guarantee it. Everyone would be calling for Herb Dean's job. Maybe with a degree of... Maybe maybe rightly. There is nothing in the law in the laws that govern combat sports that says you're entitled to anything. This was a... If you think this was a bad stoppage, you're... This isn't a bad stoppage, guys. It just isn't. You want to argue that it should have been stopped earlier, fine. Better late than never. If your argument is we should have watched that man get beat more, then stop it. That's not a real argument. Why do we do this? I mean this in all sincerity, MMA fans. Why Why do we have a culture in mixed martial arts that valorizes taking physical abuse for no reason? I mean that. What what was the argument here? Let the man go the distance? Why? Seriously, why? Was there... You don't even have the... First of all, the referee is not beholden to the clock at all. For good reason. But what's the argument here? He had a chance of winning on the scorecards? That he was in a position and had demonstrated some ability... To score a miracle win? Neither of those things are true. At all. And yet... (laughs) This is what we're doing. I really can't stress this enough. Boxing is so much better about stoppages than MMA. So much better. This was a boxing-style stoppage. If... I mentioned this to you guys a couple of weeks ago. If you didn't see Vasily Lomachenko's last fight, look it up. Watch the stoppage in that fight. Then watch the stoppage in this fight. They're not that dissimilar. They're both fine stoppages. Stop with this nonsense about there is no value to taking a beating. Not for its own sake. None. Absolutely none. We've got to knock this off, people. There's no reason to let that fight go any... There was no reason for the second and third rounds to happen. Moutinho's corner should have stopped that. They didn't. Shame on them. The ref didn't at a few other points when he could have. Shame on him. But those people are there to protect the fighter. Moutinho, he had no chance of winning this fight. Anytime he was able to land a punch, it didn't seem to do anything to O'Malley. And he was eating 
historic levels of damage to land ineffectual punches. And then... Uh, just... There's no reason for that fight to continue. If your argument is some romanticized notion about moral victories in the face of life-altering physical damage... You need a serious reality check that apparently will not happen until someone dies in the UFC ring. And apparently even then, only if it's on a big enough fight card. Just stop it with this, please. Uh, I don't know what's next for O'Malley. He's rebounded well enough. The problem is, his last couple of fights haven't been against the best opposition. I mean, this one they made had to make it on short notice, so fine, whatever. The Almeida win was alright, but Almeida was also on a pretty... Se- yeah, no. Almeida lost his last three fights. Like, that was... That was not a great... <laughs> so, he's had a couple of softer rebounds after Marlon Vera beat him. Might be time to bump him... Uh, to give him another step up. and I mean, he called out Dominic Cruz and Cody Garbrandt and Peter Yan and Rob Font. and uh, I mean, I appreciate the call out, I suppose, but in all, sincere, in all seriousness, who is Sean O'Malley's best win? Let me run you through Sean O'Malley's UFC resume here. He's beaten Tarion Ware, Andre Sukumtat, Jose Alberto Quinones, Eddie Wineland, lost to Marlon Vera, beat Thomas Almeida, beat Chris Moutinho. What's his best win out of that group? And I don't mean performance-wise. If we're talking about which win was you know, the most impressive, it's probably the Wineland one in terms of just knock the dude out with one punch. Although there's a very real argument for this last one. He showed off pretty good movement, uh, a better variety is slightly better gas tank than usual. So, you, you, uh, point being, the best name there, it might be Quinones. In all seriousness, um, is he still with the UFC? No, he's been cut. He was cut after beating Sukumtot. So He doesn't have a great... He doesn't have a quality opponent that he's beaten. That's got to change before you could, before you really start calling out the top seven or so of the division, man. So if you want it, he's probably going to get somebody ranked. He might get someone like Cody Stamen, uh, Jimmy Rivera, maybe, you know, someone like that. So the, uh, the bottom part of this goes Rafael Asensau, Jimmy Rivera, Marlon, uh, Marlon Vera, Cody Stamen, Kyler Phillips. Phillips might get dropped to bump him to number 15, knowing how the rankings work. But So Rivera or, or Stamen, I think, would be reasonable. Uh, yeah, it's, so the, the way people handled this fight. After the fact, just annoyed me because it was it was this it was the dumbest arguments that were being made. It was just the dumbest. All right, as for the rest of this card, let's speed this up a little bit. 
Max Griffin defeated Carlos Condit via unanimous decision, 229-28, Condit, I mean, I've got a lot of uh, fond memories of the guy's fights, but he's not who he used to be, and how could he be? I mean, neither... He and Robbie Lawler, man. That fight... I know Lawler, man, he had that, that stretch of fights. His title win over Johnny Hendricks was... Not the most engaging affair, but was difficult. I thought he lost that fight when I was scoring it. Beats beats uh, Roy McDonald in one of the best fights you'll ever see. Fights Carlos Condit, another one of the best fights. That fight's a war, man. Neither of those guys were ever the same after that. And again, how could they be? You cannot go through that and be the same on the other side. No one can. It's just not possible. Uh, Michelle Perea defeated Nico Price via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the board. Price acted surprised by the decision. Buddy, fights are scored round by round. Price, uh, Perea won the first two rounds. You won the third. Not hard. Third round carries no more weight than the first round. Uh, Ilya Taporia defeated Ryan Hall via knockout, 447 of the first with punches. Hall had some interesting entries he was trying, but unfortunately he was trying the same thing too often. And the more Taporia saw it, the more he was able to get a read on it, start countering it. Uh, eventually kind of clobbered Hall <clears throat> clobbered Hall with a bit of a right and then pounded him out on the mat. Il I think, did I pick Hall for this? I can't remember. I might have. But I, I was very impressed with Taporia's performance before this one. I was impressed with this one. Taporia's undefeated, and he's a bit of a hammer. He's he's no one to trifle with. That guy's a player at featherweight. Uh, I mean, he took this fight. Ryan Hall had been out of action for a while because no one would fight him. Taporia took a fight that nobody else wanted to take. And and then performed admirably, and and won. So pay attention to that guy. Speaking of guys to pay attention to at middleweight, Dracus Duplessis defeated Trevin Giles via knockout punches, 141 of the second. I gave Duplessis the first. Uh, he pretty clearly had the first actually. He was going okay for him on the feet, but once he got takedown, he he was able to pass. Ride, get a retake down, spend some time in mount. Uh, finish came, he was kind of coming off the fence. Giles gets close, fires a couple of hooks, backs off. Throws a bit of a jab, but doesn't get down behind his shoulder. Duplessis reads it, comes in with a straight right hand, clobbers him. Uh, there's still some habits in, that Duplessis has that need pretty badly to get ironed out. His reaction, if you kind of blitz him, is not great. But he's got power. He can wrestle. He can fight on the ground. Pay attention to that guy, too. Pay attention to that guy. He's... Uh, he was very polite in the post-fight, actually, when he said, no, this is how you pronounce my name, guys. I know some of you have had trouble in the media, and I know the, uh, he's, Dana White's had trouble with it. It's Dracus Duplessis. Please remember it, because I'm going to be here for a while. 
Just a very polite way of handling that. I, I appreciated. Uh, he, he's someone to pay attention to. Uh, definitely. Uh, then on the rest of the prelims, Jennifer Maya defeated Jessica Ivey in a misdecision. 229-28-130-27. This fight is what you thought it was. Please don't listen to the commentary for this fight. There, I do not understand people who think that Jessica I is a good fighter. It just... That doesn't really make sense to me. Uh, and commentary was... Not hugely all over her, but a little bit. Uh, Maya, you know, should be moving back towards the belt, I guess. It, women's flyweight is barely a division. Middleweight, Brad Tavares defeated Omar Yakhmedov via split decision. That's some bull. I was 30-27 for Tavares. For, full disclosure, first round, there's an argument for Akhmedov in the first. There is no argument for Akhmedov in rounds two and three. Whatever the... I don't know, I forget which judge scored it for Akhmedov, but fire that guy. Person, whatever. Fire them. Terrible. Absolutely terrible. Tavares looked good. Uh, Tavares has been in the UFC for a while, but he's... Uh, he turned 33... He'll turn 34 later this year. He's got a good UFC record. I mean, he doesn't have a lot of losses. His losses are to Aaron Simpson, Yoel Romero, Tim Boach, Robert Whitaker, Israel Adesanya, and Edmund Shabazian. And that's sprinkled over a lot of wins. A lot of wins. Uh, he might finally be hitting his stride. I, I don't know exactly how... He's been around middleweight so long, and he's had some, some pretty key losses... Um, you know, the Boats one was a little surprising. He was doing okay, and then that kind of fell apart. Whitaker knocked him out. Whitaker knocked him out quick. That was like 44 seconds. And he didn't really have anything for Israel Adesanya, and Evan Shabazian just blew him out of the water. But I don't really know if he's going to be able to make another run at the belt. I mean, he's never had a title shot, but make another run, you know, towards the top. But the form he's shown over his last couple of fights has been some of the best of his entire career. I will absolutely give him that credit. And he might finally be figuring everything out, so he might be due. Uh, he, he might be able to make a run. He might. So, uh, good for him. And then kicking everything off, um, Jalgas Zumagulov defeated Jerome v Rivera via submission for the ninja choke. There's a variation of the guillotine. 202 of the first. Uh, Zuma kind of clipped Rivera when Rivera was coming in with a left. He was a left. Doesn't really matter. Clips him, kind of drops him. Uh, Rivera tries to clinch up and wrestle. A little bit of panic wrestling. Zuma gets a front headlock, switches to the ninja choke. Makes him tap. Good win for Zuma Gulov. Uh... It was, you know, for as long as it lasted, it was a pretty good fight. Most flyweight fight, most, not all, most flyweight fights are at a bare minimum exciting because they're very, they're very rarely slow. So, that was UFC 264. I imagine that whole discussion is going to take up the bulk of our podcast time here. Yeah, we're a little long. Oh, well.
doing what we can. All right, let's move on. UFC on ESPN. Well, sorry, let me do it this way. Thank you for anyone who read my live coverage of UFC 264. I know a few of you were there. Thank you to everyone who read my report after the fact. I appreciate all the bad puns you guys left in the comments. There's a few of those that you threw out there. Uh, I appreciate them. Thank you very much. Made me smile. All right, let's move on. UFC on ESPN 26 next week. This is going to be fairly quick. This is... Main event, Islam Makashev and Tiago Moises. This is a really good fight. Tiago Moises is fairly underappreciated. His only losses in the UFC are to Benil Daryush and Demir Ishmagulov. He submitted Michael Johnson with an Achilles lock, and he's on back-to-back wins over Bobby Green and Alexander Hernandez. He is a very tough fighter. He's got he's on a three-fight winning streak. He's got good hands. He's a jiu-jitsu... Is he, world, he might be a world champion of some variety. I forget. He's a black belt at a bare minimum. Uh, he's uh, he's demonstrated very good jujitsu. Not just uh, he's a black belt, but if you look at how he uses it, he's he's very good. And on the other hand, you have Islam Makashev, who is 19 and one. His only loss was kind of a flash. I say flash uh, knockout to Adriano Martins, which puts him. So he's on an overall what seven fight winning streak. Uh, three of those are finishes. He knocked out Glayson Tebow. He submitted Cajun Johnson. He sub- The arm triangle he hit on Drew Dober, his last fight, frightens me. Because that really should not have worked that way. But between proper technique, the general dif- technique differential on the map between him and Dober, and gorilla strength, <laughs> he made that choke work from... He made the triangle choke work from half guard on the wrong side. That shouldn't happen. But it did. (laughs) Uh, He's a scary man. I'm going to pick Makashev here. I'm not calling... Makashev is not... He trains with Khabib. He's not Khabib. He is a very good wrestler. Slightly different style of wrestling than Khabib. He's a little bit more of a... His ground game is a little bit more pass, a little bit less smash. Uh, I mean, which is to be very clear. Not to say that Khabib couldn't pass your guard all day long with his eyes closed. He could. But Khabib was happy to prioritize... Punching you really, really hard in the face. Uh, Moises tends to prioritize a little bit more the passing and the submission threat. Khabib was more slam you, smash you. If you give me something, I'll take it. If not, I'm happy to just drop various parts of my body onto your, onto you and make you miserable. It's a subtle distinction, but it's it's one that deserves to be mentioned. Makachev's also a slightly more effective striker. Certainly a a more technical striker than Khabib was. So, point being, don't... Trying to compare them one-to-one is a a mistake. They are not the same fighter. But there's enough... There are similarities. And I I think Makachev probably wins this. I, I think fairly highly of Makachev. Whether he's champion one day or not, 
who knows? But he's a very good fighter, and this is a very good fight. Uh, co-main event, Misha Tate is coming out of retirement. She's fighting Marion Renault. Renault will be retiring after this fight. Um, Tate probably wins this, but I'm not nostalgic about the era that Misha Tate fought in, as a general rule. And I was... I'm not a fan of Tate, so take that for what it's worth. Uh, I, I just don't care that much. But if Tate wins, she'll probably try to call out Amanda Nunes, and Amanda Nunes beating the crap out of Misha Tate again is something that we might see in the future. And for the record, yeah. If you thought what Nunes did to Tate the first time was bad, Misha's been retired for several years at this point, while Nunes has been wrecking people. A rematch at this point does not go well for Misha Tate. Uh, let's see, what else do we have? Jeremy Stevens will fight Mateus Gamrot. Can I pick Jeremy Stevens here? The man's on a long losing streak. He hasn't won since February of 2018 when he broke Josh Emmett's face in half. Since then, got stopped by Jose Aldo, lost a unanimous decision to Zabit Magomed Sharipov, had a no contest with Yair Rodriguez, lost a unanimous decision to Yair Rodriguez. In fairness to him... In both the Zabit and the Rodriguez fight, by the time they got to the third round, he was coming on fairly strong. And he got knocked out by Calvin Cater a little over a year ago. Uh, he got knocked out pretty badly in that. Um, I'm actually... I suppose I'm going to lean towards Gamrot just because of the slide Stevens is on, but Stevens is still a savage of a fighter, so don't count him out at your personal hazard. Uh, middleweight Adolfo Vieja will fight Justin Stolzfus. Uh, I feel very okay picking Vieja here. Featherweight Gabriel Benitez and Billy Quarantillo. That's not a bad fight. What's Mowgli been up to? Gabriel Benitez. Beat Justin James his last time out. Lost a couple before that. Didn't Quarantillo suffer? Yeah, Gavin Tucker beat him. Huh. I'm going to lean towards Quarantillo, but if he didn't learn the appropriate lessons from the Tucker fight, that might be a rough night for him. Prelims, such as they are, Daniel Rodriguez and Preston Parsons. Rodriguez was supposed to fade Abubakar Nurmagomedov. That fell out. Short notice replacement, I I might have picked Nurmagomedov over Rodriguez. Not sure about that, but I might have. Over, against an unknown, I have no problem picking Daniel Rodriguez. I, I'm i actually kind of, I'm a bit of a believer in Rodriguez's overall abilities. Uh, he should win this. Women's strawweight, Amanda Lemos will fight Montserrat Ruiz. This fight will suck. Can't wait for Montserrat to get a... Headlock takeover, and then just hold the Kisega, uh, the Kisegatami, the scarfold position, for minutes and minutes and minutes and minutes and minutes and minutes, and minutes on end. Uh, yeah, this, this fight's going to suck. Uh, Lemos is on a three-fight winning streak. She's, oh yeah, she stopped uh, Liv, uh, Livia Hanata Souza her last time out. 
I'll pick Lemos, but yeah, probably gonna suck. Bantamweight, Khalid Taha and Sergey uh, Morozov. Taha done recently. Barcelos beat him. Um, I'll pick Taha, but I'm not sold on that. Also, bantamweight, Miles Johns will fight Anderson Dos Santos. That might be a pretty good fight, actually. Anderson Dos Santos, coming off of his first UFC win when he beat Martin Day. Uh, Johns has been in the UFC for a little bit. I'm going to pick Johns. Might have been confusing him with another Johns, but now that I look at Yeah, I think I was now that I look at his record, but I'm still picking him. Uh, flyweight fr fight. Francisco Figueredo will fight Malcolm Gordon. This should be a fairly academic performance out of Figueredo. Malcolm Gordon has gone 0-2 in the UFC. So, uh, and kicking everything off, well, hang on, will be a heavyweight fight between Alan Bedot, Bedot? Going with Bedot. And Rodrigo Nascimento. That fight will probably suck. I'll pick Bedot, but eh, who cares? Uh, there should be, they're still looking for, Phil Hawes is supposed to be on this card. He was supposed to fight Duran Wynn. Uh, Wynn had to pull out with an injury. So whether Hawes remains on the card or not remains to be seen. So if he is, I will be covering his fight whenever they happen to put it on the card. And I feel okay picking Phil Hawes in the dark against pretty much anybody they could get on short notice. Right, that will be UFC on ESPN 26 this coming Saturday, July 17th, in the MMA Zona 411mania.com. Please do stop by, say hello, I always appreciate it. All right, we're going to go through the news items fairly quickly here, so let's get to it. The UFC has a new sponsor. They signed a deal with Crypto.com, I believe. Uh, crypto will now appear, their logo will appear on the UFC uniforms. I believe they're front and center on the shirts. This deal is supposed to be worth about $175 million. That's the number that's been floated. Of which the fighters see, you guessed it, not a penny. Remember when the argument for uh, for the uniforms was cleaning up the look, cleaning up the aesthetic? We didn't want NASCAR. Yeah, look at the UFC canvas. Ugh. They just didn't want fighters getting paid. I suppose that's it. Um, the usual BS from the UFC about, you know, crypto's free, fighters are free to negotiate any individual sponsorship deal with crypto. However, standard UFC contract language requires that they go through the UFC to do this. The UFC will have a hand in it. I don't imagine, I'd be a little bit surprised if an individual fighter got a deal. Uh, somewhat in that same vein, very briefly, there's a, um the name of that group i'm gonna have a press release slash uh doohickey here yeah 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 there's a group called uh battle motors which is a a group a that develops electric vehicles that i think they do um like garbage trucks so more industrial uh, uh industrial yeah more like heavy duty electric vehicles They've some kind, they are now the official light duty truck of the UFC, apparently. 
and more specifically, they are they seem to be specifically attached to the UFC's light heavyweight division. I don't know what it says about the light heavyweight division that the UFC is happy to associate them with electronic garbage trucks, but they seem to be doing that, and I, again, happy to doubt that any fighter gets a specific check out of that. But the UFC does seem to be looking at, hey, you can sponsor this division. Ugh. Never mind that all of the fighters along the way get screwed over. Look, fighters, you can, needs to be said, you either need legislation, uh, a legal ruling, or to form some kind of collective bargaining group. That's the only thing that's going to save you. The UFC is making a lot of money, and you're not seeing a penny of it. I mean, that that's not strictly true. The UFC... The UFC just pays their fighters percentages, right? The UFC likes to keep its fighter expenses at 20%, less than 20% of revenue year to year. So when the UFC makes more money year to year, the fighters do do see a real dollar increase. It's just still the same percentage of overall revenue. And when you get to the types of numbers that the UFC is making... You want more of a percentage of the overall revenue stream, not a small adjusted bit of inflation. It's not, not a small adjustment based on how much revenue they're bringing in. You really do want a bigger chunk of that. But that's on them, not on me. I, I can bring it up, I can talk about it, and I do. But I have zero influence over what actually happens in the space. So, uh, let's see. Oh, yeah. The Nevada State Athletic Commission announced it will no longer be uh, testing for or penalizing fighters for the use of cannabis, marijuana, or its derivatives, I assume. Finally, you draconian asshats. What took you so long? This has been, this has been fairly common. Knowledge. You should just do a sobriety test. You don't want someone going to the ring impaired. And yes, smoking marijuana edibles, whatever, they impair you. You don't want someone in the ring or the cage fighting under the influence. That's entirely reasonable. The testing for marijuana sucks. You can't determine appropriate thresholds. They don't decay at the same rate. Most of, the st most of these are fairly consistent in their rate of decay in the body. Marijuana isn't. It's been a giant, it's been a giant problem. Thank you. We've had wins overturned that shouldn't have been overturned. We've had some careers unfairly drugged through the mud or potentially even ended. Uh, but finally, we've come around to a more reasonable place on this. So good for them, I guess. Uh, loosely related to discussions of marijuana use in MMA, the UFC is working on a rematch between Nick Diaz and Robbie Lawler. If you haven't seen their first fight, I highly recommend it. It is an action fight. Ends with Nick Diaz knocking out Robbie Lawler. They would want this to take place at UFC 266. That is a perfectly acceptable featured fight on a pay-per-view. Knock yourselves out, and I hope you do, because I'll enjoy watching it. I don't have a whole lot else to go off on that one. Alright. That's everything I have listed here, so let's check Twitter, see if anything crazy is broken, and if not, we will get out of here. Nothing new. So, plugs. Last week, 
I was part of a couple of movie reviews. Let's see. Monday, we reviewed... We reviewed the Amazon movie, The Tomorrow War, starring Chris Pratt. That was myself and Mark Radulich. Uh Let's see. Tuesday, we, myself, Mark Radulich, and Jason Teasley reviewed The Forever Purge. Uh, that was a thing. Uh, both of those were Damn You Hollywood shows. You can find those over on the W2M network. If you're doing the subheadings on that, it's the Radulich and Broadcasting subgroup of the W2M network. Uh, either way, thank you to everyone who's listened to both of those. Please continue to do so in the future. There was a re-airing of Everyone Loves a Bad Guy on the Captain America villains that's live at the moment. I can't recommend it. It's not a very good show. It's a show I used to host. Uh, not one of the better ones. But if you're so inclined, you can find that. This Tuesday, there will be a Damn You Hollywood for Black Widow, because that finally got released. So, yeah, I haven't seen it yet, but I will. Myself, Mark Radulich, and Alexis Haina will get together. We will talk that movie, and yeah, we'll have fun with that, I suppose. Other than that, the usual slate of coverage, AEW's Dark Elevation on Mondays, MLW stuff on Wednesdays, WWE SmackDown on Fridays. That's pretty much every week. Ugh. Yeah, every week. Sorry, my minor existential crises reared its head there. So you can find all of that in the wrestling zone of 411mania.com. My podcasting efforts, apart from this, are on the uh, W2M network. Thank you all very much for all of your support. It means a lot to me. Till next time. Oh, sorry. And of course, Saturday, UFC on ESPN 26. We'll be back here next week to review UFC on ESPN 26 and preview UFC on ESPN 27. Currently slated, knock on wood that this holds together, to be headlined by Corey Sandhagen and TJ Dillashaw. Uh, this was, these two were supposed to fight previously, but Dillashaw uh, had a random cut that he got in training. They had to push it back. Hopefully the fight holds together. That's a great fight. That's a really great fight on paper. So the rest of that, yeesh. Sorry, I'm just looking over the rest of that card briefly. That is an ugly card. That is an ugly card. We'll give you a full preview of it next week. So, hope to see you then. Until next time, I'm Robert Winfrey. Thanks again for being here. Stay safe, and please continue to be well, be safe, and behave. <laughs>